from New York City, welcome to Mark to Markets. I'm your host, Mark Penziner. On this podcast, we discuss topics related to your money, markets, and issues near and far from personal finance. You can always reach me at mark.penziner at bernstein.com or call me at 212-969-6655. Given the October we've had, on this episode, I've invited Paul Benjamin to join me to discuss markets. Paul is the former director of investments at Alcoa. At Alcoa, he oversaw over $7 billion in pension and foundation assets responsible for asset allocation, manager selection, and risk management. In 2017, he was named by CIO Magazine as one of the institutional investment industry's top 40 under 40. Paul also worked at Brookfield Investment Management and earlier at General Motors, where he was part of a team responsible for their $150 billion pension and insurance asset plan. Paul, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So, Paul, we've been through a crazy October. We are recording this on the 1st of November. What's your take on what we've just been through and where markets are today? You know, we've uh, seen throughout the year that volatility is sort of creeping back into uh, the world. Uh, 2017, 2016, uh, volatility was not something that any of us were really able to experience. I think what we saw in October was uh, just what we have to expect going forward, which is that markets will continually uh, sort of go up and down. But I think what that, why that's important is I think there's a lot of strategies and market players out there that use quantitative tools to help them in their decision-making, whether it's an asset allocation, risk management, et cetera. And those quantitative tools rely on market volatility to determine how they make asset allocation decisions. So when you see the markets moving around the way they've been, you can also expect that people and institutions will start to have to rebalance or reallocate their portfolios um, um, going forward. So I think that just sort of underpins continual uh, volatility into the future. So does that mean that, you know, we hear about hedge funds and, and big asset managers like the places you've been when they have to do these rebalancings, does that actually increase the volatility? Does that make the swings wider for the average investor in markets? It's an interesting question um, because I think if I take a step back and we think about what causes price to move around, it's the marginal buyer and marginal seller. So if all of us agree that the price of company A is $100 and there's one person who thinks it's 101 you know, at some point that price is going to pop up to 101 to, to meet that person's view. Um, so it's the marginal player. So yes, to some degree, when these institutions step in and they start trading, that creates more volatility. But the reality is um, it's as the, uh, the retail investor and some of the other um, non-institutional players also get into the market chasing returns. Um, that creates the sort of knock-on effect of volatility. Um, the best way, another way to think about it is, um, over the last, call it 10 years, you've seen a very large growth in the passive investment world, both institutionally and in the retail world. That's been a one-directional trade, so meaning people have been buying into <clears throat> ETFs and index funds. Um, you've seen the stock market go up with very little volatility. So markets can move, without the necessary need for prices to jump around when everyone is sort of agreeing on the direction. The question becomes, 
when do people stop agreeing on what the actual price of a of a security is, that's what generates the volatility. So I feel like you've hit on 10 things there that I want to ask more about. Passive volatility, <laughs> you know, people agreeing, um, how much one should pay attention. So I, I'm just going to try and deconstruct all of it. So volatility last month, is that normal? Because you talked about volatility had been really low. That's something we've been talking about. I know October felt insane, but was it actually? No. I mean, well, you can use history as a guide. Market volatility uh, from a historical perspective has been a lot uh, wider, a lot more active than we've seen over the last few years. So I would not say that October's move from a historical perspective is uh, uh, irregular. Um, but I will agree, uh, for anyone who's been paying attention to markets for the last few years, it did feel irregular, as did February's moves. Um, Isn't it so funny so you I, mentioned February? I feel like people have already forgotten that this happened seven months ago. Well, that's what's interesting is that, uh, you know, I was talking about those models before, and I, we don't have to get too deep into it. That's more of an institutional thing, but I'm happy to unpack some of how the underlying models work. But a lot of the movement from February are creeping into the models today. So you and I as humans might have forgotten a little bit about February, but the machines that are out there and the, the, the quantitative uh, tools that are out there remember it quite well and are starting to put a lot more faith and in, in, in weight into that experience. So does that mean that those models, right? Because we, we know those models. They talk about algorithmic trading, all this moves markets, right? There's a lot of money there. If, yeah. if the experience of February is now in their model, does that mean that when something happens like October, the models say, hey, this could be like February, start to move? It can, but more importantly, it can be a reason why October happened. So if I run a model that sort of tells me how much, you know, let's do simplistic terms, how much equities I should own, how many bonds I should own, those are the only two assets that I'm going to hold on to. Um, the model, the, the, sorry, the result of February's volatility creeping into the model is going to tell you to hold a little bit less of the equities and a little bit more of the bonds. So you're going to wake up in October or November or December and say, well, I have to hold a little less stock than, I, than my model told me in June or May. So you're going to go and sell a little bit. So it creates a selling pressure or a buying pressure. And then it becomes a, a self-fulfilling prophecy because now my, that other model that you referenced that says, oh boy, equities are starting to move down, maybe I need to rebalance, also kicks in. So there's a lot of, of, of the word is reflexivity, where things um, happen upon itself. Feel like uh, a domino, occurs. right? Yeah, yeah. So that's exactly a good way to think about it. But, but so, the, the moral of it is, that the volatility that we saw in October isn't strange, isn't unusual. It's just, you know, we haven't seen it in a while. I would argue that the best way to think of it is that the last few years have, of low volatility have been strange and unusual. So does that mean that in my space, right, which is private investors, some smaller foundation endowments, it's not your end of the world, most of those people are long-term investors, and we can talk about why a big pension plan might be too. But does that mean that day-to-day, week-to-week, other than the interest in 
watching what markets are doing day to day, that people shouldn't get anchored or, I don't know, emotionally invested in what the value of their portfolio is day to day, week to week, because to your earlier point, it's about the marginal buyer and it might be about some of these phenomenons which have nothing to do with whether or not a foundation is going to meet its needs or whether a client's going to be able to retire. I couldn't agree more. So the it, we can't help it. We're humans. We look and we've got behavioral uh, biases that underpin a lot of our decision making. And I'm looking at the stock market every day. You're looking at the stock market every day. If it goes up, it goes down. There's a sort of a uh, uh, an innate feeling that occurs in your in your stomach because of that. But we have to pull ourselves out of that uh, because. The, over the short term is where noise happens. So nothing fundamental occurs in a short time period. Fundamental moves, uh, wealth creation, all of that happens over long horizons. And so measuring the success or failure of a concept, a strategy, and a, you know whatever you want to call it, can't be done over these days, weeks, even months or years. Um, you know, one of the things that I talk a lot about, and I sort of try to uh, remind anybody who's willing to listen to me about, <laughs> is that we want to, you know, we, we want to generate, we want to accumulate wealth as efficiently as possible. And so, the best tool in our toolbox to do that is compounding, right? Is is uh, is earning two percent on what you earned two percent yesterday and what you earned two percent the day before. It's not necessarily hitting home runs. It really comes down to not losing lots of money. And so one of the things that you know, I would argue your, your end of the, the spectrum and my end of the spectrum needs to focus more on is less on the short measure of total performance, but on the long run measure of cumulative performance or cumulative wealth generation. So let me ask you a question. When you think about long-term, some of the things that we've just been talking about were very short-term, right? The the marginal buyer, all of those things. How do you blend a long-term strategy with the ability to be short-term tactical or the short-term impact? I've heard you talk in some interviews and publicly about that, so I, I think that'd be interesting for people who are listening. Yeah, so a couple things. One is, it comes comes down to expectation setting. At the end of the day, success and failure is really not measured in numbers, but measured in meeting someone's expectation. Um, and so there's a whole conversation around understanding what the objectives or the goals of the investment strategy are, and then ensuring that the program is designed to meet those objectives. And most, at first pass, will say, well, I want to generate the most amount of money. For the least amount of risk, be careful, right? That's that's usually what I get. Right, but but that's not that's that's an outcome you would love to have, but that's really not what you're trying to do because you're trying to make sure that wealth grows into the future and you can afford to whatever your clients are doing or whatever my clients are doing, um, and so the path of return ends up mattering. So and the path meaning like how, how much you go up and down, how much you go up and down. So people like to say, well, equities will return 8% on average over the long run. But, and that's true. If you look back to 1929, that's the you know, eight, 9% is the historical average, not what you get every year, but it's what you would have gotten on average for the last 90 to hundred years. 
But there are a lot of years where you're down 20%, 25%, 40%. And there's a lot of years when you're up 30, 40, 50%. If you were a, let's call you a retiree, and it's 2007, and you have this long-term mindset, are you comfortable that in 2008, your wealth got cut in half? If you were a true long-term investor, you would be blind to that and say, yeah, it's fine because I know I can wear that volatility because 20 years from now, 30 years from now, I'm going to have a, you know, whatever my, my performance expectation will be. But if you're the type of person that says, holy cow, my wealth just got cut in half, then the reality is you, you can't stomach that volatility. Um, and so the investment strategy needs to be designed so that your biases and and your you know your your path and your your, your pain points are, are taken in consideration. So so I think you're getting on this notion of things you can control and things you can't control. Mm-hmm. And so when I set up an, a, a when I sit down with a blank sheet of paper and I think about how to build a strategy, I start by accepting the things that I can control and and sort of trying to. Uh, except that there's things I can't control. One, so, it, so in the institutional I, space, what do you? How do you break those out? Right? What's the stuff yeah. you can and can't control? Sure. So, what I can control, in simplest terms, is risk. Where I am willing to take and put my money, um, and what I can't control is the results, the market movements. It said differently, I can decide how much money I put into the S and P 500. I cannot control what the S and P 500 does this year. Right, and that's a huge thing to think about. You can control where you put your money, but not the results of putting your money there. So then, um, what do you do? So what I do from there is is I try to identify the various sources of risk that I'm going to take. And as an institutional investor, and I think this translates across the board, I have to think about the sources of risk that my entity is taking. So if you're in a highly cyclical business, you're taking uh, economic growth cycle risk, which is really what equities does. So maybe your business already bears a lot of that kind of risk, and that shouldn't be the type of risk that you're loading up in your investment program. Or if you're a very, uh, if your business is, you know, a margin business that has sort of defensive characteristics, maybe you don't have a lot of exposure to um, economic cycles, and therefore you can bear market risk and so you should put more in equities so or I if you're a business it. that's exposed or underexposed to to uh, interest rates same thing right exactly no perfect exactly and then you know the question becomes uh, so you don't want to think about putting your money to work in dollar terms i want to put ten dollar ten percent of my assets here you want to think about how much of my risk how much of the noise the volatility the up and down do i want generated from my investment in equities, my investment in interest rates, or my investment in China, or my investment in X. Because when you think about that risk space, you're able to really make a better um, asset allocation decision. And the best way to sort of articulate that, and this gets a little more into the weeds that we can unpack if, if we want, but a typical 60-40 strategy, which is 60% in equities, 40% in some kind of bond, really has close to 90% of its volatility or its market movement defined by that 60% in equities. So when the market, when you look at your performance, 
you're really looking at what that 60% is doing. And so the bonds are just there. I mean, not in a bad way, but they're the anchor, good and bad. Well, they're all, they're less volatile. Right. So the bonds will move less than the stocks will move. And so if you were sitting there thinking, well, I want to have a low equity risk strategy because I'm highly cyclical or whatever the reason is, but 90% of your risk, 90% of the explanation of your return is from equities. Are you misaligned in your asset allocation? And so thinking in dollar terms, you could fool yourself into thinking you've diversified away your risk, but thinking in it's called contribution to risk space or just you know, how you where your risk is coming from. You would realize, Oh, I actually have a significant amount of exposure to equities. Do I want it or don't I? The answer could be yes or no, but at least acknowledge that's where the risk is coming from in your portfolio. And then we can take steps to hedge it, improve it. You know, I think the best example of this is, is people like myself or people in our industry, right? And I've talked about this with, with clients of mine who are on Wall Street and, and clients know this, right? If the market goes through a major correction, it's going to have an impact on, on financial services compensation. Mm-hmm. So you could argue that me showing up to work every day gives me some amount of market exposure. Now, does that mean my portfolio should be 100% equity or no equity? I, the point is I got to think about that, right, and build that into the equation. A hundred percent. And for someone uh, in your world and the clients in your world who um, have wealth, whether it's uh, income generating wealth, so jobs or wealth because of businesses they've created or wealth because of inheritances or whatever that go outside themselves individually, whether they have family members who work or whatnot, they need to think holistically about where their risks are coming from. You know, if your spouse is a school teacher and you're uh, in the market, you don't have 100% exposure to equity volatility. You have right. other, other good other good examples, right? The, uh, if a teacher has a fixed dollar pension without inflation adjustments, they've got risk to inflation. 100%. And they've got um, significant amount of risk to inflation. They got they have uh, budgetary risk as well. So there's also um, you know when there, there's some market risk there as, as budgets get tighter, t- less tax revenue comes in, less promote, less raises occur. So they they should think about all this. But I would agree wholeheartedly with your first statement that guys like you and me, we're quite levered to the equity market for good or for bad, and. That needs to be. This is by the way. This is by the way why I married a bankruptcy attorney so I could reduce that exposure. <laughs> let, let, yeah. let me ask. But let, let me ask a related question. So you talked I, about. I, 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 I'm gonna, is that your proposal? Uh, it I was. Need I need to diversify myself. <laughs> so, so let me ask this question. So, so you talked about. I take a dollar or sixty percent of my portfolio, or whatever, and I put it in the S and P five hundred, which mm-hmm. asks the question about active versus passive, right? Mm-hmm. Do, do, is is that right? Um, is there a benefit or or negative to doing that versus having active strategies? No better, no worse. How do you, how do you think about that? Because when you have such a large pool of capital, I'm guessing you have to very much think about: Do we want to be active or passive? I do, and so I'll take it in a, in a little bit different angle, uh, but it goes along with what we were just talking about, which is thinking about the sources of risk or, or really 
um, how return is generated. You know, when I say sources of risk, I, I'm really thinking what is driving the underlying drivers to the return I'm going to get, whether it's positive or negative. And in, a, in an active strategy, some portion, and you can debate how much, but some portion of your return is driven by the passive, the beta of the market. Just the market and going some, up or down. Just the market going up or down, whatever market is, S&P 500, you know, whether it's the you know, emerging market, uh, one of the MSCI emerging market indexes, it doesn't matter what you're talking about, but there's some market component to it. And then there's also some skill. You know, we refer to it, you and I refer to it as alpha, but we'll call it skill. That Stock also picking, right? Whatever you want, how people think about it. Right. And that can be positive, again, and negative, right? Right. And skill doesn't have to always be good skill. Um, but, you know, to your question of do you, should you just be, do we think of active and passive? I think you have to realize that um, when you put your money into an active or a passive strategy, uh, you are getting passive uh, exposure. I um, personally am a believer in active management. Um, I think markets are um, inefficient because you and I are humans and we play in this space and we can't help but being inefficient in our views of the world. Um, and remember, it's the marginal buyer that moves the stock price, not the crowd, not the average buyer. Um, so if you want to say on average we're right, but it's the marginal person that's going to change the stock price. Um, and so I'm a believer in active, but I will tell you the passive ways um, that we've seen over the last, call it 10 years, maybe a little bit less than 10 years, is something we should be aware of and try to understand. Will, do, you, do you think that means that there's a... Um that the passive trade is extended, that there's a bubble in passive. I'm, not, I'm, I'm just throwing words out there, but does that concern you how much has gone that route? It concerns me how much has gone that route because of the belief that markets are efficient and that active will never work. It does not concern me that it's, we have money in passive because people like equities. Do you get the sort of the difference between that? Yeah, if people, want to, if people want to own risk, that's great, right? If people don't believe that, that evaluating a company and knowing what it's worth is worth anything, I think that's an issue. That's an issue, and I think that issue will, uh, that, that trend will change at some point, and that will create problems in the, uh, in the passive world because people will shift from passive back to active. And doesn't that mean that, I mean, this gets really, you know, into depth, but it, it would be a, a misallocation of capital in our capitalistic system if money was just flowing into passive and not going to where it could be most efficiently used by smart money. Yeah. So it becomes an interesting philosophical debate on whether fundamentals matter. Uh, because you're right, if money pumps into a passive index fund, and that's where the growth is, then company A at the top of that index fund will always be at the top, and so will always look like the biggest and best company because they're getting the marginal dollar that's coming in. And the 500th and so company will get underfunded, conceptually, and that, right? And, exactly, perfect. And they're, but none of that, tells us whether fundamentally they should still be at the top of the food chain or right. Who's a good company or who's a bad company? Who's improving margins? Who's got great management? All of that is just irrelevant. 
Right. And so, so let me ask the, the, the today question and what makes you most nervous today? Maybe nothing. Or is there something you think is just so opportunistic today? No, no, so I'm nervous about many things, but I think people like you and me and people in our industry uh, are inherently uh, nervous. You know, we're not scared of our shadows, but we are trying to think about what the unknowns are or what we could be missing. Um, you know, look, if I go in front of my investment committee and say we've got X percent in equities, if equities are down 50%, here's the result, and that happens, they're I mean, not fine, but at least they, they had the expectations properly aligned for them. The question becomes, what didn't I know was baked into my portfolio? What is going to cause some kind of unknown uh, problem in the future? And so I'm constantly nervous, and that's, um, that's a good thing. It helps us sort of second-guess ourselves every day on what we thought we knew yesterday. And so when I think about that, what, what makes me nervous, the passive flows don't necessarily make me nervous, but the belief that equities will continue to run higher and that market fundamentals support that um, makes me nervous because um, I, I, think, I, I think there's enough research out there that shows that while companies are profitable today, they aren't doing the type of investing they should be doing to, be, to continue this profitability deep into the future, right? So there's a, there's a misalignment of capital being allocated to um, um, projects that should be accretive to the business. Whatever that is, um, R&D, build a new plant, whatever. Whatever. There's a lot of share buybacks. There's a lot of um, dividends. There's a lot of other non-creative stuff. I also see a lot of debt out there. And debt by itself is, is, is okay, but debt, towards the end of a business cycle tends to be very, very risky um, for, um, for a company, right? Because they don't have the capacity to borrow when things get a little bit leaner. Um, I also have, you know, see some issues out there uh, with volatility. And so that's where I wanted to answer this question. Um, I think that a lot of the volatility we've seen in 2018, so the increase in volatility as it comes into all these models out there that underlie probably stuff you do, definitely stuff I do, definitely stuff that big banks do when they advise clients. Um, it's going to cause more selling pressure into the future. And I think we're at the front end of uh, models basically repricing risk, which is probably a very uh, esoteric term to throw out there, repricing risk. But what it's basically saying is that well, we thought equities were safer than they were, uh, than they actually are. Paul, this was great. I'd like to thank you for helping me out on this episode. So thank you for joining, and I'd love to have you on again. No, yeah, this was a lot of fun. I always enjoy talking to you, and I appreciate you uh, inviting me on here to talk to your, your listeners. Thanks again. And to our listeners, any questions on this or any other topic, I can be reached at mark.penziner at bernstein.com or in my office at 212-969-6655. Until next time. <laughs>